This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Register now for a schedule packed with the nation's top farmers and leaders speaking on important industry topics. All of the 2024 Top Producer Summit in Kansas City. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. The annual practical farm research data is something many farmers, including myself, use to make agronomic decisions. What are the key takeaways from the annual field trials, and what should we consider for the upcoming season and beyond? It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by the 2024 Top Producer Summit. I'm a farmer that likes to learn, and of course there are a lot of options out there, both online and in person, to gain knowledge on all kinds of topics that impact farming and beyond. One place I'll be this winter, though, to grow and learn is the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Each year, you can count on the Top Producer Summit to bring together some of the nation and world's top farmers and ag leaders to discuss, share, and learn from one another. It's a jam-packed schedule with topics of interest to just about everyone. And with a location central in the country, it's a place many of us can get to without a long trip. I'll be at the Top Producer Summit, and I hope you'll join me to get the latest tips and trends on critical topics in agriculture. Just go online to register for the Top Producer Summit 2024 in Kansas City. For many years, Bex Hybrids has conducted something called Practical Farm Research. The PFR field trials cover a multitude of topics in many locations. Jason Gayheimer is the manager of the Practical Farm Research Team at Bex. Every year, I enjoy the chance to talk about what they've learned over the past year and how the data, over time, reveals some of the decisions that we should consider on our acres. Here's our conversation. Jason, we're talking about uh, Bex and Practical Farm Research. It's certainly something that Bex has done for a long time. And You know, maybe I should just begin there. For those that aren't familiar, describe what that is because it is a bit unique. You're doing research that really isn't necessarily about Bex. It's really about the whole gamut of what we might do in farming. Yeah, yeah. So Bex Practical Farm Research, you know, the first thing I always tell everybody, we're not a third-party contract research company. No money changes hands. Uh, our goal in Practical Farm Research, Sonny's goal when he started it um, back in 1964, was to help farmers succeed through unbiased agronomic research, to be a source for farmers where it's 100% unbiased, good, replicated agronomic research, and it's practical to the farmer. And practical being our plot sizes are a little bit bigger. So we do we do have some field-scale research, but the majority of our, our research is in plots, strip plots, but they're three to 500 foot in length, uh, four to six row, maybe even eight row data, uh, replicated three to five times per location. And then most of our studies, we even replicate three to five different locations, get different weather, soils, so we get a very large data set every year. Um, you know, we're currently sitting at seven uh, Beck-owned practical farm research facilities, and we are in the process of opening two more uh, between this year and next year. So we're expanding into Kansas, and we're starting our own site in Minnesota. And so we will, you know, by this time next year, we'll we'll have nine Beck-owned practical farm research locations, and then we still do some cooperator research where we work with some partners to help get. Uh, a little bit of practical farm research done in places like the Delta, maybe Michigan, Wisconsin, those areas. So, 
there's so much there, and if folks haven't looked at it, they they should because you'll find a topic or many topics of interest. Let's jump into this though, and we can start so many places. But one of the hottest topics has been biological, so let's go there. And and you had mentioned to me that lots of testing of lots of different products, and I'm just going to let you take it away. You can start wherever you'd like to uh, with all the different testing you've been doing on some of those products. Yeah. Define biologicals for me, right? So that's the, we always ask everybody that and everybody's got a different opinion on what that may be or biological versus biostimulant, right? There's a lot of, and we're really probably one of our focus going into this year is going to be maybe, maybe just try to educate more on biologicals, educate ourselves as well as help try, try to help others understand time and place for biologicals. And, you know, I've said this a lot, um, Right now, consistency and biological, those two words don't go hand in hand, and it doesn't mean that they're bad, right? We're, you know, we, we're testing a lot of biologicals, and there's, there's, there's tends to not be a ton of consistency there, but that doesn't mean they're a bad product. I think we have a lot to learn about biologicals. Um, you know, one of those things is biological versus biostimulant. You know, are we going to, is this a product that's going to stimulate bio, biology that's already in the soil, or are we applying a product that is putting more biology into the soil? And I think understanding what's already in our soil and then what we're putting into it if there's synergy there or antagonistic things going on i think that's part of maybe some of these inconsistencies you know obviously handling these products right if you do if you are looking at a biological that has living bacteria in it um handling it appropriately storing it appropriately applying it appropriately you do one of those things wrong prior to getting it in the soil it, it, you, you know, your results for success are already over. Um, so I think it's very critical to learn as a farmer, if you're going to try biologicals, you really need to sit down with these companies. Don't just go buy it, read the label, apply it like you do a fungicide. Um, you really need to learn about the product and, and, and figure out where, where it should work, where it shouldn't and why and how to, and how to do all those things appropriately because uh, that can make or break success with these products. You mentioned the inconsistency and so forth. Is there anything in the research you've done that does seem to be consistent about them, that it does seem to have more of a response perhaps in a drought year or a wet year or so forth? Is there any through line that we can put through some of this research? Yeah. I mean, we've seen some good results in, I'm going to say, lesser productive soils. Um, you know, maybe, but, but some of the some of the biostimulants may be better in, uh, real productive soils because you, you've got good biology there. You've got good organic matter. You've got a lot of things working in your favor already. And maybe you can just continue to stimulate that versus the need to add more there. So, um, so we've seen, and there's a, there's, I'm, I don't want biologicals to get a bad rap because I feel like time and time again, growers are saying, well, I tried this, it didn't work, but why? Right. It doesn't just because a product, even when we test a product in practice farm research, it, it, you know, no product works every time. The best product, PFR proven products don't work every single time, right? So understanding why they work, when they work uh, is very important. So we don't want to give biologicals a bad rap. We're testing a lot of them, right? That's That's been uh, the last two months we've been meeting with companies and 90% of those companies have been biological companies. Um, so we're just trying to learn and, and add some new products to the to the mix this year and, and see what we can find and discover. So um, there's just, there's an absolute, ton of information that still needs to be learned with biologicals and so um there's there's some good things happening you know we tested pivot bioproven and one of their biggest claims is the product will add more nitrogen in plant biomass um and we did some sampling and we did see that that was that was pretty consistent actually um that it was doing what they said it does 
in terms of that, and our data would show that. Now, when it correlates to added yield and when it doesn't is the inconsistent part, right? So, so we did see some of the time it did correlate to adding yield. Sometimes it didn't. Even if it did put more nitrogen into the plant, it doesn't always mean it's going gonna, it's gonna to show up in a big way when it comes to yield. And right, it, it's profitability is the name of the game, right? You can't sell nitrogen plant biomass. So we really need to figure out, okay, that part is working. Now, how do we make sure it can consistently deliver yield for us and deliver an ROI? And so that's kind of that next step that I think needs to be really focused on with some of these. I think there's good things in the works. I know Pivot is working on some new things. Um, they're continuing to, to invest in product development and research and uh, we want to be alongside these companies to try to help with that. Let's talk about something that is somewhat related, and that are, would be some things that we might do in the planter box. Um, and you had several research studies, not only in additives to the planter box, but top replacements and so forth. What are you finding with some of those products? Yeah, uh, that it's kind of been the, as we meet with companies last year and this year, there's a lot more products being uh, manufactured for that, that application type, which makes a lot of sense. Every farmer's planting seed. So um, it, it can uh, it can be something that every farmer can can try, and so we've tested quite a bit of products last year. We're doing some new ones this year, retesting some from last year. Uh, the biggest thing I like to talk about when we talk about those type of products is are they are these products that replace your your flow agent um, and and add other things, or are they just something that you add on top of your flow agent? So being very descriptive on. You know, if you're if you're trying some of these type of planter box treatments, ensuring that, hey, you know, I don't want you out there putting a new product in there and then putting talc graphite in there also when you don't need it anymore. So, you know, over applying too much flow agent um, might not be a good thing. Um, but uh, so that's the biggest thing is really if you're going to try some of these products, make sure you know whether they have a flow agent in them already and it's replacing what you were doing or it's just adding on top of. Do you find that some of those products are able to deliver what they, they say then? And because, you know, some of those yeah. products would be normally in furrow, but a lot of us don't have in furrow on our planters. So could we use some of these products and maybe get some of the benefit that we could have if we had an in furrow type of application? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, some of these products are delivering. I mean, it's not these, in my mind, these aren't products you're adding in that are, and they're giving you 10, 12 bushel every time. Right. So, but we've seen some good two to four bushel on corn, you know, two or so bushel on soybeans. And so um, most of these products aren't real expensive either. You know, you need a bushel, you need a bushel to pay for the product and then it's gained from there. Um, and it's pretty easy to do. It's quick. You, you know, you can, you can meter these in while you're, while you're filling up. Or, um, it, it's not going to add you a lot of time. It's not a ton of product that you have to handle. Right. So they're, they're pretty low use rates. Uh, so we're pretty excited about those type of products. They don't have to move mountains, but right. And if you can just gain a couple bushel, there's that's good ROI across all acres. So there are some good products. A lot of them are, have some biological components to them. Some of them nutritional products. Um, and then some of them are just a cleaner, safer way to add like dust, for example. It's a pretty popular one, right? It's cleaner. It's safer. Um, you know, it's replacing that. It is replacing that tout graphite. You know, when, when you mess around with graphite, you got it all over yourself. It clings to you. You're, you're dirty. It's gross. You're sitting in the cab, getting it everywhere. Um, dust isn't, isn't that way. So some of these products are, are, uh, pretty innovative and, um, you know, they're adding different things to those, those flow agents as we go, whether that's biologicals or nutritionals or whatever it may be. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see what's coming down the pipeline. 
let's go to something that I think a lot of us are interested in and maybe some have tried, and that would be drones. And not just the drones just for the sake of having one, but you did some research on fungicide application, ground rigs versus drones. Uh, I'm just curious what you found. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually shocking because, be, uh, you know, this is, it's hard to do that research. So when we look at um, true aerial application, right, whether that's a plane or a helicopter, we can't do that in plot. So we do these trials field scale with, with cooperators, with growers. Um, these are hard trials to execute from A to Z. You know, timing up the plane and the just everything and getting the data all the way back and Mother Nature not screwing anything up for us. And um, so we've been trying this for a while. We really we're very successful last year in getting a bunch of different field trials of this, different different variations of whether that's plane versus ground, or helicopter versus a ground rig. Some of them had a drone thrown in there. So we're going to continue to invest in in this research, doing it um, field scale. And then we do the drone versus ground in the plots. We can do those in the plots. So we are, you know, we're getting another spray drone ourselves to continue to do, try to do more of this research, uh, because we saw good results last year. We, now we didn't have a ton of disease pressure. Um, and it was, it was pretty cool to see because when we applied a lot of the, that did a lot of those applications, we did spray cards. And so those spray cards, you know, if you would have asked me which one was going to have better response, better yield, I would have said the ground rig because the ground rig covered the car, the coverage on those cards was phenomenal compared to the drone. Um, you know, the it, night and day difference. I'm like, Ooh, this may not turn out so well. Uh, we got majority of the results back showing drone was better than ground rig or plane. Um, and so there, you know, we're, we're sitting there going, okay, that's a two gallon application. The coverage was at like superior, but when you watch that drone, the amount of air movement it has, I think we're getting deeper into the canopy. Maybe it's swirling it around enough. We're getting more on the underside of the leaves. Um, you know, so just typically where you would put the spray cards, the ground rig covered that well. The drone didn't have as much. So is there a concentration piece uh, going on there as well? And so, you know, you're putting the same amount per acre out there, but you're doing it at a two gallon, roughly two gallon per acre carrier versus 15 or 20. Um, so the concentration piece is interesting. I'm really excited to try to get, not that I want a bunch of disease, but the last two years we've done this research, hasn't been heavy disease years, which is great for farmers. Uh, but I would like to see these results if we got a little more disease in those trials, um, to see how, you know, does that, does that really widen the gap even more between one application or the other? So very interesting. You know, I'll be honest with you. If you'd asked me five years ago, if there'd be a lot of drones flying around, Spray and fungicide, I'd have told you you're nuts. I just don't think we'd get it covered in time, but there's there's more and more guys doing it, and there's fleets of, you know, there's there's people investing in a fleet of drones and, you know, providing a service. And the, the cool thing about the drone is, is, um, you know, you're not running over anything. You know, aerials disadvantages if you've got hills or trees, power lines. It's hard to get everything covered perfect. Uh, disadvantage of the ground rig is you got to run over some corn. Right, at least on the inroads, if not running over some here and there, um, so that's its disadvantage. The drone that you know, the disadvantage is maybe you can't get as many acres per hour covered unless you have a bunch of drones, um, but you can get you can get every square inch of that field covered, and you know we're we're seeing good results with that. So we're pretty excited to continue doing that. Another topic that you have done now for several years is cover crops and the use of that. I know that I've seen some of the trials that you've got there. Uh, what's going on with cover crops? Because uh, we continue to hear we need to be using those. Uh, what are you finding? Yeah, I mean, 
I've always said if you're if you're only doing cover crops to increase yield, um, you're probably going to be disappointed at least in the first few years until you get that system really working. Um, you've got to be you got to be a very intensive farm management program with cover crops. You do one thing wrong, it's going to go backwards fast, uh, and we've seen that. This year was very tough in general, just being dry, and then the cover crops made it worse. Um, so we we did not see very good results this year with cover crops. Doesn't mean they're bad. Doesn't mean they didn't do other great things. I mean, there's there's many different reasons why a farmer should use cover crops. Um, but it, yeah, like I said, if you do one thing wrong or you have a year like we did this year, that you know, there's a chance to lose some yield there. But long, you got to look at the long term play of what you're trying to do with the use of cover crops. You know, I'm interested in this brings up a good topic here. You have the different locations. I've seen your cover crop trials there in Indiana at the headquarters. Are you doing those in different locations? Because I think with cover crops, many times we do think of, okay, maybe marginal soils where I've got more erosion and things is where I'm going to use them as opposed to flatland in Indiana where you're at. What Was there much difference in those locations? I suspect you're doing those in a lot of different places. Yeah, there absolutely is. We've tried cover crops at every PFR location and where we really see the biggest advantage consistencies is you know london ohio we do a lot of no-till heavy clay uh, poorly drained soils we do a lot of no-till so cover crops it's one of the sites that's it's more effective there um indiana has been hit or miss a little bit i mean like i said you got to really it's a different management style you gotta you gotta be on top of everything you do and you gotta be timely with everything whether that's termination or when to plant when not to plant um what cover crop to plant how much to plant (laughs) there's a lot that goes into it um you know, we've done the Henderson, Kentucky have, that's a site that particularly just hasn't been good for us with cover crops. So we don't do a lot of cover crop research there. It's not a, it's cover crops. Once again, just like biologicals aren't a one, one size fits all. Um, Central Illinois, El Paso, Illinois, not a big cover crop area. We don't do a lot there. Effingham, Illinois, we do a little bit there. See some, see some benefit. Iowa, same, same scenario. Uh, there's a chance to see some good benefits from cover crops out there, especially on some of the hills and things. So um, we're still, we're still met. We're still trying to learn just like we are with biologicals. Same thing with cover crops. So we, we're starting some regenerative ag studies at Iowa and Indiana. And those are, you know, basically the goal of those is just keeping things in the same exact spots for long periods of time, soil sampling and looking at how things change over a longer period of time versus just doing some random studies. Um, so that's exciting. We'll do full blown tillage, no till, and then we'll break into no till with cover crop and then maybe no till cover crop and try to reduce um, synthetic fertilizer, synthetic herbicide use, and just kind of just baby step each block that that we do and, and see how those things change over time. A few years ago, you've been talking about planting dates for so long, and you kept showing that the research says you could buy another planter and plant your beans earlier, and you would be better off economically. So we did. We did that a few years ago. So tell me about planting dates and what we know about getting beans and corn in the ground and and how it's going to pay for things in the long term yeah so that it's funny that that's that's a study we're going to keep doing we've done we've done corn and bean planting dates for 23 plus years um so long time but it's it's always a it's diff every year's different and you learn something different every year it's a great visual study every year um so we really enjoy the the planting date studies um what we learn over time is you know you just have a higher chance of higher yields if you plant earlier and especially with soybeans, you know, what we've learned when we compare the two planting dates is, you know, that trend is the same is true on both, but 
but it's actually stronger on soybeans than it is corn. And if you think about what are you trying to do when you plant soybeans, what are you in the market for? You're in the market to capture sunlight and get as much sunlight to those plants as possible. Try to get try to get the soybeans to grow and bush out and capture all that sunlight and not let, you know, not let it hit the ground. And the earlier you plant, you know, the 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 quicker we can get the the plant up and going and and capture more sunlight throughout the season versus later planting. And that really correlates to yield year in and year out. You know, the only time where we see, you know, a, a really bad two times where we see really bad effect, if you plant too early and you get some frost <laughs> after after things have emerged, right? That 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 can happen, right? Risk reward. Uh, so be careful of, of paying attention to that. The second piece is if you just get uh, t- the rain, you know, late August, September rains, if those favor towards, you know, if your early planted beans have kind of already start to shut down and that, and they just didn't catch some good late rains for pod fill or for, for uh, seed size and, and filling out, but the later beans did. So once in, on average, once or twice every 10 years, the later beans might out yield the earlier beans. But if you look at that long-term data set, Early planting pays. So, as far as planting goes, anything about the row spacing for beans or corn? I know you've done a lot over the years with that. Yep, yep, we've done. We have done a lot over that. We've done, um, you know, with corn, we've done thirty inch, twenty inch, fifteen inch, ten inch. You know, we built a multi-row with multi-hybrid planter. It was a technically a ten inch planter. Planted ten inch corn. That w- that worked really well in our our high yield attempt, our four hundred bushel attempt here at Indiana, where we're we've got drip irrigation under it and. We can just really push push yield. So ten inch was great down there. Uh, probably not not suited for every farmer right now. <laughs> Different management practices needed there. Um, but row spacing's been a big deal, especially on soybeans. Corn, you know, we thirty inch corn is is still tough to beat. Um, if you're going to get into that narrow game, different management practices need to occur, right? Even maybe tram lines because you don't want to give up in season management. So still being able to get get through the crop in season to do some in season management is very important when you get to narrow rows. Um, but soybeans, the narrower the row planted with a planter row unit, being able to get good depth control, uh, singulation population, all those things. Uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of a, dr- a drill. I call them a controlled spill. Um, so, you know, but you gain, you do gain the, the narrow row effect with the drill, but you lose some of the other benefits of not being planted with a, with a row unit. And so the narrower you can go, so when we built that 10-inch planter, we did 10 versus 15, 20, and 30-inch soybeans, and 10 just smoked every other row spacing pretty much every time. And you don't see, I don't say that very often with anything we do, is it worked every time, but buddy, that worked pretty much every time. Um, 15-inch beans have been tough to beat. We always typically out-yield our 30-inch beans at almost any of our sites, uh, unless you're dealing with white mold with our 15 inch but when we started messing around with 10 inch that was and it was still using a planter row unit um it was a game changer jason there's so much out there and you cover so much tell folks about how they find that and and if you want to focus on anything else there because um, there just is so much and, and as you mentioned some of this goes on many 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 years and some things are new because you're always trying to find what's the new thing that we need to research out there yeah, so we publish a, you know, for a long time now, we publish a book and uh, the majority of our research goes in that book. Now, every single individual data set's hard to put in there because it'd be like a 600 page book nowadays with all the all the research we're doing, all the locations we're adding. So we put out a book that kind of encompasses a lot of the multi-location stuff, gives you a snapshot of some of how the individual sites did. 
Uh, we also then this year put uh, QR codes in that book that can give you a PDF of each individual site data. So if, if you just say, hey, I just want to see Indiana's data in the front towards the front of that book, you can scan a QR code. It will give you the PDF of just every single study that Indiana did in those results so on and so forth with the other locations. All of this can also be downloaded on our website, bexhybrids.com, on our research tab. Go to, you know, all books or PFR books, and you can download the, the you know, previous year's books, this year's book, the individual packets. All data is available online. And then, like I said, the, the book, the physical book reprint has the majority of it in there as well. Jason, I appreciate the time. As I mentioned, uh, it has influenced what we do on our farm, and I hope it does for others. It's uh, good, unbiased research and makes you think, if, if nothing else. So I appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. I encourage you to check out their data. There's lots there, and I think you'll find yourself looking at many of their studies to see applications for where you farm. I know I do. Thanks for joining me on this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside and our daily show, American Countryside, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, just type in Farming the Countryside or American Countryside. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways on many local radio stations, on your favorite podcast platform, or at farmingthecountryside.com, where you can go back and listen to past shows of interest. I appreciate you joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by the Top Producer Summit, held February 5th through 7th in Kansas City. Register now for a schedule packed with the nation's top farmers and leaders speaking on important industry topics, all at the 2024 Top Producer Summit in Kansas City.